anyone get faith? Where does faith come from? What is faith? Scripture tells us that faith itself is a gift of God. If salvation is about us, it is not a gift. It is a result of work. If God sovereign and sovereignly called me, then He has sealed me. Welcome to the teaching ministry of Heritage Baptist Church in Ashland, Ohio. Each week, we bring you expository and practical teaching straight from God's Word. And now, here's Pastor Ben. It was one year ago last night that Andy Mills literally saved my life when we were stupidly trying to put a tree out that was on fire on my property and the tree broke and was about to hit me and Andy pushed me out of the way and we both ran like a couple of fat walruses up this muddy embankment while Vietnam was exploding behind us. Not many pastors in this area can say that literally their lives were saved by their lead deacon. I can. So other pastors in the area deal with that. All right. So that was going to be my big birthday thank you to Andy is thank you that I'm here again, but he's not. So we'll just, I don't know, pay attention to scripture for a change. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts 9. I'm going to put this verse in context for us by reading a couple verses before and after so that we understand what's going on. So let's back up to verse 17. And Ananias, when he went his way, entered the house, and laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, immediately there fell from Paul's eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose, and he was baptized. So when he received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Verse 20. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. And all who heard were amazed and said, is this not the same man who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased even more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we are truly dealing with one amazing verse that connects the immediacy of our conversion with the immediacy of our proclamation of the good news. So I pray that today would be a motivation to our hearts to understand, to return us to the joy of our salvation, that we might go with boldness and joy and love and pity and compassion into the world that does not know you and proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. Bless us this morning. Remove my agenda from me and let your words ring true. In Jesus' name, amen. It is sometimes difficult to preach through a book like Acts because it is so narrative in nature. Unlike the theological epistles of Romans or Ephesians or James that we've been going through, Acts is by and large a historical account of the things that we see going on in the church during this time. So when we come to a verse that that stops us in our tracks, it's somewhat unique because normally through a book like Acts, we're preaching through several, several, several uh, verses at once. So we isolate this one verse, and I want to ask this question. It's a question of timing. 
We see in verse 20, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues. So when did he do this? He did it immediately. There was no pause between Paul's conviction that Jesus was the Christ. As soon as he received strength and was able to physically walk to the synagogue, he did that. So let me challenge you with this. If you are indeed convicted of something and yet you are unwilling to confess it, what does that say about your level of belief in that thing? Does this not go part and parcel with Jesus saying, those people who deny me to, or deny my father to them, my, my father's going to deny them. It's the idea that if you truly believe something, you cannot help but exude it, but verbalize it, but share it. And I sometimes wonder about quiet Christians. And I don't mean that the opposite is to be obnoxious in your faith. I just wonder about somebody who claims to be a Christian, but you've never heard them share the gospel or introduce the Christian faith to anyone. I wonder why that is. Furthermore, too often today, a young seeker will become a believer within a church, but they won't share the gospel with someone for several years. Why do you think that is? I have two reasons, but I want to hear from you. Why is it that we've conditioned young believers to not share the gospel? Any thoughts on that, Jared? I think, I, I can only speak for myself, uh, but I can say that I think one of it is uh, a lack of uh, confidence in their own abilities. Absolutely. They're thinking that it's up to them to convert, and they don't understand it's the Holy Spirit that does that. Huge. Absolutely huge. Uh, Richard, did you have a thought there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe they don't know what they know. Maybe they don't know how to articulate what they know. Is there anything that the church is doing to discourage them being too verbose at the point and moment of their salvation? Is there anything going on in that end that we might think of? Anyone? Katie? Katie? We pat them on the head. Yeah. Congratulations on your baptism. Now go sit on the side and learn. And when you're ready, you can share the gospel. Okay. I keep this piece of paper in my Bible, and I have for almost 20 years, because the statistic that was shared on this piece of paper terrifies and shocks me. When I heard Bill Fay speak, Bill Fay wrote one of my favorite books on evangelism, Share Jesus Without Fear. I heard him speak in 2001 when Pastor Chris Rufner was our associate pastor. And one of the things he opened his, his Friday night talk with, it was a two-day seminar, he opened with this statistic. 97.4% of Southern Baptist church members will die without once sharing their faith. That's not all people who claim to be Christians. That's not Protestant, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox Church. That is our denomination. 97.4% of them will die without once sharing their faith. I hope that if I were to ask you, or if Jesus were to ask you, have you shared your faith with someone once in the last year, I would hope that the answer would be affirmative. And I'm wondering if the church itself has played a role 
in discouraging, though they do not realize it, people sharing their faith. Paul did this immediately. He shared his faith immediately, which makes me think, well, what might the church do to hold back a new convert from sharing their faith in the joy and moment of their recent salvation? Perhaps they want to make sure that the new convert knows what they're talking about, so they hold them back in order to educate them. What do you think about that? Apparently nothing. I'd say time's wasted. Time's wasted, yeah. What, what, what does the new, does the new convert know all ins and outs of theological discussion? No, no, but none of us do. What does the new convert absolutely, positively know? Absolutely. They know that Jesus saved them. And to quote Jody, they have a zealousness that somebody who has been saved for 20 years cannot relate to. We can remember it. We can sing songs, return me under the joy of my salvation. But we're not that person who is ripely saved. Now, I believe you can always share what you know. So it probably would not be a good idea for a brand new believer to be preaching on Trinitarian homiletics. This is a different qualification. We see in First, First Timothy that one of the qualifications of deacons and bishops is that they are able to teach. Not every new believer is able to teach. Not every believer who's been a believer for 20 years has the gift of teaching. Andy Mills would tell you that's not one of his gifts, is to stand up and do what Jared and I do. So that's not what we're talking about. What a young believer certainly knows is what just happened to them. They know that some change occurred in their hearts, and they know the message that they responded to, so they are more than qualified to share what they know. Now, the second reason is the new convert might not know how to share the gospel. Just because somebody has shared the gospel with you doesn't necessarily mean that you know how to do that. Now, I'm the first to admit this can be terribly intimidating, especially if you're a young believer and especially if you're young in age. But I'll tell you two things that are universal. You get better by doing, okay? And most of us are rusty with sharing the gospel, not because we don't know how to share the gospel, because we don't do it enough to be comfortable with it. The second point, besides you get better with doing, is this, and I think, I think it was Jared who brought this up, God's sovereign. You don't control anyone's salvation. We are messengers. We are not converters. Our task and our call is to go and take this truth to the people. And also keep in mind, next point I want to make here is this. Paul's advanced teachings, his most well-known letters, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and his missionary journeys would come some years after his conversion. But his actual teaching of the basics of the gospel that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, those happen, to quote Luke, immediately. Verse 18, immediately there fell scales from his eyes. Verse 20, immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues that Jesus was the Christ. A young, newly converted believer is one of the most precious resources that a church has. Why do we sing, return unto me, Lord, the joy of my salvation? Because far too many of us, despite having been faithful in attendance and teaching and fellowship, have lost the joy 
of our salvation. It's been so many years and we've grown so comfortable as believers that we've forgotten that experience of that initial joy of realizing I am saved. Today, out by the soccer fields, as I was driving to church on Middle Roundsburg, right across from the, uh, the Agrimart there, I got hit with a red light, and I stopped, and I looked up, and this overwhelming thought hit me. When was the last time I just said, thank you, Lord, for my salvation? in the busyness and the hustle and bustle of being a good husband and a good father and a good pastor and all these things that I do, the vast majority of which I enjoy and embrace as the goodness of labor, as Dan and I have been talking about, when was the last time I just stopped and was frozen by this thought? Lord, I do not know why you chose me, but you did. And before I even unpack what that means for me, thank you, because I did not deserve it. Please, please give me the strength and the patience and the wisdom to rise to the level of fulfilling the duty that you've called me to do. And I can think of no other seminal duty that I must do before all others, which is to repeat the message that has saved me to people who do know it and people who don't know it. People think of preaching the gospel is just about winning the lost. It's not. It's about reinvigorating the saved and being mindful that this gospel message is something that keeps us going. When we bring a young believer forward in the church to share their testimony, it isn't only to encourage the believers in the body. It's also to show those who are attendants who might not be believers the joy, the absolute joy of knowing Jesus. I marvel at men like John Piper well into their late 60s and early 70s who preach with such a passion and evocative joy and humility because I feel that I often come up here and I'm incredibly analytic, incredibly academic, Dan, and that sometimes what is lost, <laughs> take that, so sometimes what is lost in that is, guys, this isn't just what I know, this is what drives me. This is what drives us. This is why we keep coming back. This is what fuels us. Second question from our singular verse. As we see Paul's proclamation comes immediately after his conversion, we must then ask this question. Where did he go to do this? The first question is when, immediately. The second question is where does this verse tell us that he does this? What is the location of his ministry? Not a trick question. What is it? The synagogues. Why did Paul go to the synagogues? Why did Paul begin this dialogue in the synagogue? There's about 50 answers to that question, and they're all correct. Brandon? Partially for the other Jews and Jewish leadership. Let's say what they said in the Yeah, there absolutely is a theological reason. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But there's a strategic reason under that, which is this. It has to do with, do you know why the Mormon church keeps targeting me? They probably target you too. But do you know why part of the Mormon church's methodology is to target pastors of small conservative churches? Jared, do you know this? you know the answer because we are shepherding yeah. the flock. And if they can get the shepherd, then they can coerce the flock. Yeah. Let's say I become Mormon. 
unlikely. But follow me on this path. Let's say I do so, and I start subtly introducing Mormon doctrine and theology into this church, and you guys are smart. It takes you a couple weeks, but you start to catch something's wrong, something's off, the church splits. Do I take no one with me? Do I convince no one that I'm on to something with this? I mean, statistically speaking, statistically speaking, the chances are they're going to win over more than just me if they win over a shepherd. It's also one of the reasons why you guys hold me accountable as much as I hold you accountable so that we're able to identify false doctrine. But think about this from a good perspective. Paul is saying, if I go to the Pharisees, if I go to the teachers of the law, and if I win some of them over, and he does, we see Nicodemus being won over, for example. Uh, we certainly see Gamaliel. I don't know if Gamaliel's saved, but man, I wouldn't be surprised if he is. So we see this happening, then it's the people that are influenced by those, those, those figureheads being switched sides that become incredibly powerful for the gospel. Why else does he go to the synagogues? Brian? Those are the people he's familiar with. Boom, that's it. Yeah, the synagogues were Paul's bowling club. They were his bridge club. They were his video game club. They were his Call of Duty clan. That is his people. He knows them. He has relationships with them. So it makes the most sense that he goes there because he, he knows the language. He knows the culture. Also, there's a degree of respect because Paul is one of them. He is a Jew and a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee, self-proclaimed more zealous for the law than all of his brothers. He doesn't go in there ignorantly. He goes in there knowing exactly what their mindset is, exactly what their objections might and could be. Let me just say this to say this to encourage you. We sometimes look with utter shame and contempt at our pre-Christian lifestyle and sinfulness. And we should in the sense that it's sin. But have you ever looked at the things that you were wrapped up in before you got saved as an opportunity to connect with people who struggle with those very same things? One of my closest friends spent most of her formative high school years being beaten by her high school boyfriend, physically abused, with the knowledge of her father, and he did not do anything to save that, to stop that, to shield that. Can you imagine the psychological effects that that had on this young woman, who then went to college, went to seminary, got her counseling degree, and at this present moment is counseling young girls in abusive situations? The Lord had a plan even for the horrendous things that she had to experience. The Lord has a plan to use even the horrendous things that you've been enslaved to to free others from similar bondage. When you can look eye to eye to someone and say, I've done that, I've been there, I've done worse, and I am the living embodiment and proof that the Lord is not only capable, but willing to deliver you from this, that person will say, I'll hear you out. I'm looking for an escape. I'm looking to not be bound. I will hear what it is you have to say. So Paul goes to the synagogues. Why? First of all, because it was part of God's plan, both in the sovereign big, big letter T truth that God goes to the synagogues because first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. He also goes to the synagogues, or how does that apply to us? It applies to us in this sense. One, we recognize God's sovereignty over salvation. Secondly, we recognize that the Lord sometimes puts us in surprising places. How many of you, if you had a time machine, 
and went back 20 years could tell yourself, in the year 2021, you'll be at a Southern Baptist church. How many of you would be like, nah, <laughs> nah, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. I remember very clearly when Mary and I were engaged, not yet married, and I had been called to the ministry, but did not have the nomination, studying and studying and studying for several months. And then finally one morning I woke up and I called Mary and I said, you're not going to believe this. I think we're Southern Baptists. She said, really? Where are we going to find a Southern Baptist church in Ohio? And I said, I have no idea. I didn't even know they existed in Ohio. And yet years later, here we are. Second reason, or I'm sorry, sometimes we try to make the mistake of trying to dictate to God who he should use us to save next, right? Well, I'm like this, and I'm built this way, and so this is the way I'm going to approach things. Jody has this really interesting experience, I hope you don't mind me leaning on this, where she spent a short portion of her postgraduate studies working as a campus minister at AU. And the group of girls that absolutely latched onto her in her studies were what? Soccer players. Soccer players. And Jody, have you ever played soccer? Okay. So what? You didn't even understand it, right? And yet, that's the Lord connected what seemed to be a round peg with a square hole, and it worked beautifully. How many of those girls are you still in touch with from 20 years ago? I mean, probably two or three. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we had a huge impact in their lives. Um, I have another study, uh, another story of a friend of mine who's a minister who spent a, a semester or a summer home. Uh, he didn't go home for college. He stayed and worked on campus. And he's this huge football player at the College of Worcester. And he got teamed up working the grounds crew with these two total comic book nerds. And over the course of the summer, he himself became a huge comic book nerd, shared his faith with those guys, has been in their weddings, and they had nothing in common except the rakes that they were carrying across the soccer field, and the Lord used that. So we need to be recognizing a couple things. One, God knows what he's doing, and sometimes what he's doing is putting us in a place where we're going to have to adapt to be able to share our faith with people. So it was also part of God's plans to speak to the Jews first. So my question is, why didn't he just talk with them in the community? Why did he go and talk with them specifically in the synagogues? Does anybody have an idea on that? Why specifically the synagogues? Jared? In the synagogue, they would always have a week, they'd have a reading. Yeah. The scrolls and they would read the scripture and it says that he reasoned with them using the scriptures to convince them. What's the, let me read this description, and you tell me what you think Ashland, Ohio's equivalent is to this. The synagogues were not just forums of worship, but they were also public community centers where ideas and thoughts and philosophies were shared and debated. Think of the temple in Jerusalem. This was a secular market uh, of people that both Jews and Gentiles could come together. Likewise, the synagogues in cities like Damascus provided all sorts of social outlets. The synagogues were where Paul's message could impact the most people. What do you think the equivalent is in Ashland? And I don't know that I know the answer to this. I mean, maybe the park across from the courthouse like the corner where we see the people still holding signs and like where the, where the tree lighting ceremony is. Maybe it's Facebook. Maybe it's through our government somehow. I don't know. The culture is so different that Paul basically goes where he's going to say people are willing to debate and there's an open and free-flowing ideas of thoughts and information. 
Wherever that is for you, I don't know that there's one universal place in Ashland, but whatever that is for your life, that's probably a good place to start to open up and share your thoughts and feelings. So what does that mean for us? Paul knew the synagogues because it was his life. It was what he did. It was the people and the culture that he was familiar with. So what exactly does that mean for us? Well, it means at least the answer to two questions. What do you know and where are you from? What do you know and where are you from? That's naturally going to be how you connect with people socially. And I find it fascinating that sometimes Christians will develop these super intense friendships with people and years will go by before they ever actually share their faith with them. And I think that's a fraudulent activity because one of two things has to be true in that scenario. If I am friends for years with Brian because we like to run together and I never share my faith with him, then either my faith isn't real or my friendship with Brian isn't real. Because if my faith is that important and I don't share it with him, then it's a superficial friendship. And if my friendship with Brian is real but I don't share my faith, then it's a superficial faith. Can anybody argue against that? I mean that very seriously. I'm not here to throw hands. Does anybody think that there's any other rational explanation for that? Second question, it's even harder. How many of us would say, sadly, I've got a couple of those relationships and I'm not really sure how to broach the subject of my faith. A lot of times it's workplace. A lot of times it's family. I'm not really sure how to cross the line. The most important thing I can tell you about that is today begin praying that God would open a natural, non-awkward door of opportunity for you to be able to begin to share your faith and dialogue about the deepest parts of your life with them. I will tell you, it is easier for me to do this than you because of my job title. That just kind of knocks down some barriers and some walls. For those of us who are Christians while working in the secular world, it can be more challenging, I get it, but you're no more excused. You're not excused from it and nor am I. Final question, what was it that Paul preached? According to Acts 9.20, what was the specific thing that he exuded in his dialogue? What was it? Someone say it. Yeah, that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Much of the fault today of the church is that we are simply not speaking clearly enough about the identity of the man known as Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Amen? Amen. How many of you can tell me what amen means? You just said it. Truly, I agree. Honestly, honestly, for those of you into hip-hop, word that that is that is a very very accurate modern day translation would be to just be like yeah i completely agree word okay uh so the next time that i say amen you feel free to say word um uh the idea is you are affirming what has just been said now why do we affirm why do we amen jesus christ is the son of god because we know what that actually means and what it means for us. So somebody else might know what it means in an intellectual or academic sense. Christians believe that this man Jesus died on the cross and somehow his sacrifice appeased the wrath of his father so that sinners could have an entrance into salvation if only they would pledge their life to him. 
Many non-believers could tell you that. that that's, a, that's a basic understanding of what Christians believe. It becomes effectual. It really begins to matter when you understand what it is done to and for you in particular. And that's the bridge that we have to cross. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Paul said it in the middle of every synagogue and every temple he ever visited. He said it in the face of death. He said it to the Roman authorities. He said it to his former teachers. He said it to his fellow colleagues and co-workers. He said it when he was lying on his deathbed. He said it to people he knew well. He said it to total strangers. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Today, I think you would agree that in the church, the American ideal of having your cake and eating it too has pervaded into our thought. In the church, we want Jesus. We want him to be a great teacher. We want him to be a great philosopher. We want him to be a great source of hope and encouragement. We want him to be a great example of how we are to treat our neighbors. We're even okay with him being the most central figure in the history of Western civilization, but we do not want him to be the son of God. And if Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, he is none of those previous things. He is not a source of hope and encouragement. He is not an example of how to treat our neighbors. He is not a great philosopher. He is not a great teacher. If Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then he is all of those previous things. If he is not the Son of God, he is none of them. If Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, then flatly he is a liar, and we are all wasting our time. One of my favorite films of all time is the 1997 film Contact, which deals with a lot of themes of science versus religion. And in this amazing scene, about halfway through the movie, there is a uh, Catholic priest having a discussion with a scientist. And she is questioning the validity of the concept of faith. And she lost her father when she was 10 years old to a sudden heart attack. And the priest thoughtfully pauses and says to her, did you love your father? And she's very offended by this question. She shudders. She's taken back and she says, yes, very much so. And he says, prove it. Her entire world was based on the issue of empirical faith. I'm sorry, empirical proof. And she did not understand that there were things that could absolutely be true without one's ability to prove them. I am certain I cannot prove that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I can defend the logic behind the thought. I can show you scripture that supports the logic. But if I could prove it, then it would be a salvation based of your understanding and my presentation, and thus a salvation based on works. We're not asked to prove one time in scripture, not a singular time are we asked to prove that Jesus Christ, to defend the faith, yes, but not to prove. That is not us. We are asked to share and dialogue and to trust God for the results. That is a faithful life, one worth living. Thanks for listening to this message from Pastor Ben Roby and Heritage Baptist Church. We welcome your feedback or questions. You can find us online at hbcashland.com or connect with us on Facebook. If you found this message helpful, please share it with a friend or loved one. Again, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next week.